Well, um, <coughs> I have a question as Seth's, of Seth's rolling this TV out. I'd hope to, it helps if I turn this thing on. I do this every week. What do, you, uh, what do you hope for? What do you hope for? If you had to think right now about your, about your life, um, about your friendships, about your relationships, about your career, your possible career, or, or where your career is at right now, uh, what do you hope for? Maybe for some of you, it's a really short-term hope. You're just hoping that the fact that you've consumed your body weight in chocolate, you're hoping that calories don't count on Easter. And you're just hoping, like, I hope that I can wake up tomorrow and not be dealing with the side effects of this and have to work extra hard at the gym. Uh, for some of you who are parents, uh, you're hoping that your children will wear out eventually because they've eaten so much chocolate today and the sugar just seems to be going and going and going and going and going. And maybe for some of you, you have, you have some hopes that are surrounding some completely different things. Maybe for some of you, you're in high school and you're coming towards the end of year 12 and so what you hope is that you can get that OP score that you need to, to kind of get that QTAC preference and get into the course that you want. Maybe for some of you at uni, you're coming to this kind of that juncture moment where you kind of got to finish uni and step out into the real world. And you're hoping that there's a job waiting for you. Maybe for some of you, when, when you think of this idea of hope, it doesn't really take you to, to, to a great place. It actually takes you to a difficult place. And you hope that the relationship you're in or maybe the marriage that you're in will be able to survive this season because the last month or the last year hasn't been fun and it's been difficult and you're wondering, are we going to make it? Maybe for others of you, that this, this time and this word is, is really challenging because someone you know, whether a family member or a friend, they've just, they've just got a diagnosis. And it was something that no one was expecting. And so you hope, you hope against hope that, that maybe they'll be able to beat the odds. Maybe able, they'll be able to come out the other side. And this, this hope thing, is, it's so unique because it, it affects us whether we're Christians or not. It affects us regardless of our gender, regardless of where we were born, regardless of our personality differences, where we live currently, how much money we make. Um, hope is this kind of thing that uh, impacts all human beings because the truth is, as human beings, we all need hope. Every single person in this room, no one looks at that and goes like, oh, wow, I didn't know that, right? Because we all need hope. And we're going to talk about this whole idea of hope tonight. And if we haven't had an opportunity to meet, my name's Chris. I'm one of the communicators here at Beyond. And I just want to say we are, we are so glad uh, that you would come and you would spend Easter with us. We hope you had an incredible time um, at our Easter carnival. Thankfully, the rain only hit like right at the end, okay? So we hope that you had a good time before the rain hit. And we hope that you love it so much that, you'll, uh, that you might want to come back next week. There won't be as much chocolate, uh, but there will be some bangers still being played next week. Um, and so tonight we're going to talk about this whole idea of hope because we need hope not just to survive, but we need it to survive and thrive. And you know that and maybe you've experienced this when you, you hear about uh, prisoners of war and you, and you hear these stories of people who were, who were kept in conditions that we would look in from the outside and we would observe them and we would say, hey, that situation is hopeless. But in the midst of a situation that we look at and we go, hey, that, that looks hopeless, these prisoners of war who were able to come out the other side they were holding on to something. They were holding on to the family that they were going to see. They were holding on to the friends that they were going to come back to, or the loved one that they were going to come back to. They had this idea of hope. And at the same time as we've seen it in some of the most difficult circumstances in life, the, ch the chances are that you know someone and they have a job that you would wish that you had. They have the kind of income that you could only dream of. Maybe they have the car that you want, or the house that you want, or the family that you want, and they have everything lined up, all the things that you want, and yet they tell you 
that in the midst of all this stuff from the, uh, from the outside looks full of hope, they feel hopeless. And hope, it's such, it's such a difficult thing to define, right? But it's this thing that we know that we can experience it and we feel it when we, when we have it. And we can say in those moments when we've got it, yeah, I'm full of hope right now, I'm full of optimism. And when we don't have it, we feel the crushing effects of what life is like when we're hopeless. And if we look out at the world, right, hope kind of falls into three big categories. Three big categories. The first big category that hope kind of falls into is this, this category, like wishful thinking. Okay, this happens, um, and I'm, I'm having a wishful thinking moment right now because wishful thinking is this idea that you, you say something out into the universe, or you say something out there, and you hope that your words will change reality. And the reason I'm having one of these moments right now is because I heard right before we came in that the Broncos were actually winning for a change. And I hope, no one say this score in case there's someone sitting next to you who doesn't want to know, I hope that they managed to win, although the chances aren't likely, but I hope that they did. And people who are wishful thinking have this same approach to life. Like, I hope I get fit this year, even though they don't have a gym membership and they haven't looked at their diet and their, their cupboard's full of sugar. Like, I hope I get fit. Or people who say things like, I hope I save enough money for that trip that I want to go on. They haven't looked at their bank account. There's no saving plans in place. And so wishful thinking is just really a short-term fix. Because it kind of, a, a, we, we, get, we believe with this, that if I just speak it out of the universe, it'll change reality. But we learn very quickly that that, that doesn't happen. The second kind of block that you could put um, hope into is this whole idea of hope, this blind optimism. You ever meet those people who are just annoyingly happy? Like, and you just wonder, like, what is, like, how are you this happy? Like, I, I wonder that all the time. Maybe that's just because I'm always grumpy. But I look at them, maybe I'm jealous, and I'm like, how are you this happy about life? But blind optimism kind of takes it to another level. Blind optimism is not just someone who's happy all the time. Like, if you're one of those people, that's awesome. You should come talk to me and tell me how you like that. But blind optimism is that thing that when, when something bad happens in the world, when something bad happens relationally, they turn the other way. And it's not because they turn the other way because they don't care about what's happening, but they don't want to acknowledge that there are any bad things happening in the world. Because they just think, hey, if I can just be happy enough, if I can just be optimistic enough, then my optimism will flow into other people, and then that optimism will flow out into other people, into other people, into other people, and the world will just hold hands and sing one big song of Kumbaya, right? And this is such, this is another thing that kind of, it makes us feel good in the short term, but it leaves us lacking in the long term. And the final category is this, is hopeful dreams. Hopeful dreams are, are those kind of dreams that you kind of put out on your vision board and then you start to make plans and you break down the steps of how you're going to achieve your, the big dream or the hopeful dream that you have for yourself. Um, but, but these are like vision boards in a different way because if, if you know me, you know that I'm the first person to say like, write your goals down, break the steps down, figure out exactly what you need to do to get there. Um, hopeful dreamers can be seen if you've ever watched an episode of Australia's Got Talent. Okay, these are the people who rock up for the audition and they're like, oh my goodness, I've been waiting my entire life for this. Like, it is my dream to have a top 10 hit. And then they start singing. And you think to yourself, did no one ever tell you this is a way too hopeful dream for you to be even the top 10 hits of our family, let alone like the top 10 hits of the world? And, and this is this idea that it's not that dreams are bad, it's just that we don't recognize our limitations when we have hopeful dreams. As much as I would like to be, I'm never going to be a power forward in the NBA. 
that's just one of the limitations of being 5 foot 11. Like you can't compete against LeBron James when you're 5 11. And so hopeful dreams is this kind of category where it says, hey, I, I want to have this dream, but I also don't want to recognize my limitations. I don't want to recognize things that are going on within my life that actually, even on my best day, would prevent me from achieving this hope that I have. And maybe you're sitting there and maybe you're thinking like, wow, this guy has just literally gone through like the three kind of ideas of hope and um, they're all short term, so that's not good for me. And, and I, I agree, like I think each one of us, and I see myself, when I have hopes, I can look at these and I can go, you know what? I can see different hopes that I have boxed into these different categories. I'm not saying these categories are bad. I'm just saying that there's a better category. I'm just saying that there's something better for us that we can have hope in that isn't so short term, that's long term. And in fact, that's what we're going to talk about for the next couple of minutes. It's what people like you and, um, are gathered all across the world today talking about. And as followers of Jesus, uh, and if you're in, not in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, first of all, we're so glad you're here, but, but our hope is tied to the events that surround this historical event called Easter that happened just over 2,000 years ago. And in case you have to leave early, or in case you are listening to this um, on iTunes or online and um, your internet cuts out, I want to let you know the big idea. I want to let you know the bottom line, the takeaway point before you leave, and it's this, that the resurrection of Jesus is the hope of history. The resurrection of Jesus is the hope of history. That's what Christians have their hope in, this whole idea of the resurrection. Now, I understand that as soon as I say this word, like resurrection, you're pushing back, right? Those of you who have questions or you're not sure about Jesus, like, you're pushing back. You're like, whoa, 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 Chris, time out, time out. Okay. Resurrections might occur in Avengers Endgame. When all the Avengers, like, come back, we hope to defeat Thanos. Okay. That's what we're hoping, that they're all going to come back in Avengers Endgame. But that's a story. Okay. That, that's just a story, Chris. Like, resurrections don't happen in real life. Like, Chris, Chris, come on, man. Like, how many people do you know that have died and then resurrected? The stats are not in your favor. And, and for you to say that the resurrection of Jesus is the hope of history, surely you just got that from the Bible. And maybe, maybe you came here today and, and maybe the reason that you resist or the reason that you push back against this whole idea of Jesus is because um, maybe you've believed or you've been told or you've kind of had this concept that, that the resurrection is based on this, that Christians only believe in the resurrection because the Bible says. That oh, you, you guys only believe in that stuff because of this really old ancient book that no one really ever believes in anymore anyway. That's the only reason that you guys believe in the resurrection. And if you believe that, or maybe you've been led to believe that tonight, I want to let you know it's so much better than that. It is so much better than that. Christians don't believe the resurrection happened just because the Bible says. In fact, we believe in the resurrection because Matthew. Matthew was this tax collector who was, uh, who was hated by the Jewish people and hated by the Romans, and then ended up following Jesus for three years. We believe because Matthew, who followed Jesus for three years, wrote a biography of Jesus' life. And he wrote the conversations and the interactions that Jesus had down. And, and we actually have that document that Matthew has. And not only do we have a document by Matthew, but we have one by this guy called Mark. And Mark was another one of Jesus' followers, but Mark um, kind of got together with the guy who began to lead the Jesus movement after Jesus resurrected. His name was Peter. And Mark and Peter kind of got together and wrote another biography on the life of Jesus. 
And we have that um, a document that has survived history as well. There's another guy, Luke. We're going to talk more about him in a second. And then this next guy, John. This is an awesome document to read because John was Jesus' best friend. Okay, some of you don't think Jesus had favorites. He did. His name was John. And John wrote a biography on the life of, of his best friend. And John's biography is different to Matthew, Mark, and Luke's. Because John writes from the perspective of a best mate. It's an, it's an incredible read. And then we also believe because of this guy, Peter. So Peter just didn't get together with Mark and like write, write a biography. But Peter, because he was leading the early Jesus movement, would often write letters to different gatherings of churches. And so we have some of the documents and the letters that Peter wrote to these churches as well that have survived through antiquity. And Peter tells us that Jesus lived and he died and he resurrected. This next guy, I've always got to stop on this guy because his name's James. Not the James that was up here earlier, but James. James is the brother of Jesus. The brother of Jesus has a document that survived antiquity. And the brother of Jesus lived and behaved exactly as you would expect if your brother came to you during their lifetime and said, I'm God. James said, you're another. Okay? James did not believe in his brother during his lifetime. James pushed his brother to the side. James didn't even want to be associated with Jesus during his lifetime. And then think about this. What would your brother have to do to convince you that he was God? Because after the events that surround Easter, all of a sudden James jumps onto the scene. All of a sudden James becomes one of the prominent leaders in the early Jesus movement. And James went from unbeliever to biggest champion of his brother. And then the final person is this guy, Paul. Paul is, um, was this type A religious fanatic who was a Jew, not a Christian, he was a Jew. And so Paul was on a mission to destroy the church, to destroy followers of Jesus and he was actually succeeding until he had an encounter with Jesus and it radically changed his life. And from that moment, Paul went from Christian killer to starting all these churches around the Mediterranean Rim. And Paul wrote letters to these churches. In fact, um, if you look at, uh, if you have this like book called the Bible, to, to call it a book is not really accurate. It's a collection of documents, okay? It's not one big book that you read from cover to cover. It's a whole collection of documents. And it's kind of split into two um, major groups of documents, the Old Testament and the New Testament. If you go to the New Testament, that's where you'll find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, James, and Paul. Paul actually writes, and his letters make up two-thirds of the documents that we have that make up the New Testament part of our Bibles, a guy who was a Christian killer before he became a Christian. And it's this guy, Luke, that we're going to look at tonight. It's Luke's account of the life of Jesus that we're going to quickly take a look at because Luke is kind of different from everyone else you know James and Paul they weren't part of the 12 but neither was Luke but Luke was different in that Luke originally wasn't a follower of Jesus but he was also a doctor he was a medical doctor and he uh, moonlighted as a little bit of a historian so Luke when he comes to things is very analytical Luke doesn't want the emotional side of things Luke's that kind of guy who's like just give me the facts give me the facts give me the facts and Luke, um, you can tell that Luke is the kind of guy that just wants the facts by the way that he starts his biography on the life of Jesus. This is what he writes. He says, having carefully investigated. In other words, I didn't just go to Jesus' boys and his girls and figure out what, they, what the story they were telling. I went and I investigated and I interviewed and I spoke to everyone. 
people who were for Jesus, people who were against Jesus, and people who just weren't sure who he was. And I investigated everything from the beginning. I also have decided to write an accurate account for you. So Luke is saying, the reason I'm doing this is because I need you to know what I discovered after I carefully investigated it. And then he says this at the start of his letter, of his um, biography as well. He says, and the reason I did it is so you can be certain of the truth of everything that you were taught. See, Luke went and wrote this biography just as much for himself as he did for us. Because Luke wanted to know that, hey, if there's something to this, if there's something more to this Jesus guy, I want to know. And so Luke wrote this just as much for himself as he did for you and for me. And if you follow the the biography that Luke paints of Jesus' life, Luke uh, begins to tell us interactions where Jesus claimed to be God, where Jesus said, hey, I can forgive the sins of the world, where I can restore people. And and Luke tells stories about um, how Jesus came to uh, create a brand new way of humanity interacting with God. And not only that, but uh, Luke says that uh, Jesus came to actually create a brand new way for followers of Jesus to interact with other people. And that God would look at the way that followers of Jesus act and mark them based on how they interact with other people and how well they love others. Luke uh, has in Jesus' account that the love of God is best expressed when followers of Jesus love those people who don't share their views and don't share their values. And then it kind of gets to this climax, right? The entire biography is building. It's building to this point. And if, you, if you've ever read it, you know this point that it gets to, but if you're not, I'm kind of giving you the Spark Notes version. It gets to the second last chapter. And everything's leading up to this moment where it's like, hey, Jesus is going to be the guy that kind of saves the world and saves the world and kind of um, gives us a brand new future. And all of a sudden, you know the story, he dies, hung on a cross. And in that moment, as we're kind of reading this story, if you've ever read it, it's kind of like, what? Like, Luke, hang on a minute. That's, that's not how it's supposed to end. Like, I, I, this is not the way that stories are supposed to end. The hero is supposed to win. The hero is supposed to come out the other side. And if that's how like, we feel, if we're reading it, or, or the, you would feel if you were to pick it up and look at it, imagine what it would have been like to stand in the heat of the Middle Eastern sun, with the flies buzzing all around you, watching this take place. And to your left, if you were to stand there and and you were to be there, you'd look to your left and you'd see Jesus' mother Mary just weeping uncontrollably as her son is executed before her eyes. And and next to Mary is Mary Magdalene, one of Jesus' closest friends. And then if you were to look to your right, you'd see John, Jesus' best mate, just staring at his best friend, wishing, hoping that he could do something for him. After all the things that Jesus had done for John, John in this moment, when Jesus needs him the most, cannot do a thing. And for six hours, which must have felt like an eternity, they sat and they watched Jesus die. Until eventually... Jesus pushed himself up from the nail that was put through his feet, grasped that last little bit of air, slumped down, and death claimed another victim. Death did what it always does. Death won. And in that moment, everyone at the foot of the cross lost hope. 
everyone who was witnessing it lost hope. And this is what Luke tells us in the aftermath of that. In the aftermath of that loss of hope, Luke says this is what occurred, and this is what happened in, in the final chapter of Luke's biography. He says this, At the crack of dawn on Sunday, the women went to the tomb carrying the burial spices. Notice they weren't carrying their like mocha fropa, cappuccino lattes, right? Because they weren't expecting Jesus to rise. They went with burial spices. Why? Because they were about to do probably the most difficult thing they'd ever done in their life. They were about to finish the embalming process of the person that they had put their hope in. And this is what happened. They found the entrance stone rolled away to the tomb. So they walked in. And they start to kind of begin to put the dots together at this point. And it says this, it says, but once inside, they couldn't find the, uh, the body of the master Jesus. And this was like the bit where kind of everything came together, where all the dots were joined. And Luke tells us this. He says, they couldn't believe that he had done it, that he had pulled off the resurrection. No, Luke didn't write that. Because that didn't happen. And the reason it didn't happen is because nobody expected no body. You know, there wasn't like the disciples kind of didn't all get together and they're like, hey, we should go down to the tomb and we should have like a coming home party for Jesus. They weren't all standing there going, 10, 9, 8, like waiting for it to blow open. Like there wasn't a big banner that's like, welcome home, Jesus. Because nobody expected nobody. And the reason is because when Jesus died, their hope died as with it. This person that they had been following, this person they'd put their trust in for three years was gone. And so was their hope as well. What really happened was this. They were puzzled. That's a little bit more like it, right? That's probably the kind of reaction that we would have if we went. We're like, well, this is odd. They were puzzled, wondering what to make of this. Then out of nowhere, it seemed, two men, light cascading over them, stood there. The women were awestruck and bowed down in worship. The men said, why are you looking for the living one in a cemetery? And I could just imagine, right, um, it doesn't say that the women said this, but I could just imagine there was like a little bit of a dialogue that Luke didn't kind of add in, that, um, that they kind of asked this question like, what do you guys mean like living one? Can you, like is there some kind of like translation between like angel speak and human speak? Like did they not get the memo up there in heaven? But the reason we're here is because he's not living anymore. The reason we're in a cemetery is because we're not trying to find the living one, we're trying to find the dead one. Why would you ask us that kind of question? And then the angels sort of say, no, I think, I think you missed the point because the question's not for us to get information. The question's for you to think about. And then they go, here, here's what we mean. They said, he is not here, but he is raised up. And you can almost kind of still sense the, the, the kind of, they're not, still not sure. They're like, when raised up, you mean like moved? Like, like it, did someone put him in like the second level of the tomb? Like, what's going on here? And then they go on to explain. They said, remember how he told you when you were still back in Galilee, that he had to be handed over to sinners, be killed on a cross, in three days rise up. Then they remembered Jesus' words. And this wasn't like a, oh, right, I forgot. No, this was a finally like, it all makes sense. The dots have come together. The body's not here. Oh, oh, he, he, he resurrected. And so the, the women, when, they, when the dots are finally joined, they race back to tell the, tell the other disciples. They race back to tell the guys, and being typical guys, this is their response. The apostles didn't believe a word of it, thought they were making it all up. And I can, I can kind of empathize here with the guys, right? Because if someone came racing back and being like, 
There's a guy who has died, remember Jesus, and now he's resurrected. I would have that same response. In fact, there was only one of them, Peter. It says, but Peter jumped to his feet and ran to the tomb. He stooped to look in and saw a few grave clothes, that's all. And even after what the women have told him, even after seeing it for himself, this is Peter's reaction. He walked away, puzzled, shaking his head. Peter was still unsure. Peter was still trying to figure it all out as he was going. In fact, it it wasn't until later that night, the women had kind of been telling the guys all day, come on, you really need to believe this. Come on, you really need to get on board. Like, this is a thing. For the women, hope had reignited. But for the rest of the crew, hope was still extinguished. They were puzzled, but hope was far, far away. And it wasn't until later that night when they were gathered in a safe house on the outskirts of the city, hiding for cover because there was a bounty on their head that Jesus finally appeared to all of them. And this is what he said. He said, don't be upset and don't let all these doubting questions take over. And maybe just like he said it to the people in that room, maybe he's saying it here to you tonight. Maybe for some of you, you, you've got doubts and you've got questions or you've had terrible experiences with church. And so you're not sure if you kind of can hope in Jesus. Maybe for the first time or maybe ever again. Maybe you don't know if you can come back to put your hope in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say in those minutes, Jesus doesn't say, hey, forget them. Jesus says, no, 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 bring them. Bring the doubts. Bring the questions. Bring the concerns. Just don't let them overtake you. And then he does this. He says, look at my hands. Look at my feet. It's really me. Look at the hands that hung on a cross for you. Look at the feet that propped me up as I was trying to breathe, as life was slipping away. Touch me. Look over me from head to toe. A ghost doesn't have muscle and bone like this. And what happened in that moment for the disciples is that hope reignited. Because all of a sudden for them, it became abundantly clear that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. That they were not just standing in the presence of a carpenter from some backwater town, but they were standing in the very presence of God. Because they had witnessed what few people ever do. They had seen a man enter history, be defeated by death and resurrect again. And in that moment, hope reignited. In that moment, hope reignited because they realized that their past didn't have to define their future. That the chapter that they were writing didn't have to be the way the story finished. That, this, that there is more to this life than just this life. And not because of anything that they had done, but because of what Jesus had done on a cross for them. When he took the weight of the world upon his shoulders. And so I have a question for you. The question is this. What's your hope in? What is your hope in? This is one of those weird questions, right, that, that everyone has an answer to, but not many of us has, have answered. Everyone has an answer to this because all of us live our lives in such a way that if, other, if someone else was to look in on your life and say, hey, where do you think my hope is in? Other people would have an answer for you. But you might not have, ha- have an answer for yourself. If, if for you, if, um, you, you know, you... Uh, are always working all the time. You have no margin in your life. Anytime anyone calls you and says, hey, can we hang out? 
hey, can we go to coffee? Hey, can we go to breakfast? Hey, do you want to come home for the kids? And you say, no, 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 I just don't have time. I just don't have time. I'm so busy with work at the moment. Chances are your hope is in your career. Chances are your hope is in how other people at work view you. If, if you're someone who you, your, uh, your self-esteem is based around what one or two other people think of you, the comments that one or two other people make of you, then chances are your hope is in the hands of other people. Maybe for you, your hope is in the fact that you just want to get a plan and you want to have it all lined out uh, with your life and you know exactly how much money you're going to make and when you're going to buy your dream home and when you're going to step into that dream job. And so for you, your hope is all wrapped up in how well you can control life. And the reason, the reason I kind of ask that is, we've even um, got these cards printed, they're probably stuck to your bum um, right now, but, but we actually believe that this is such an important question, that you need to wrestle this and, and wrestle it to the ground, because you, you know where this is going, right? This is Easter and I'm a pastor and we're in a church, right? Of course I'm going to tell you to put your hope in Jesus, but I want you to know if your hope is not in Jesus, what it's in. Because so many of us don't actually know what our hope is in, even though we live in such a way that our hope is in something. And so we do have an application. And you are smart, so you are going to guess it. We kind of package our application here at Beyond in a Four Monday. Um, but the Four Monday for Easter is simply this. Put your hope in Jesus. Take the time and figure out, look at that card and think, you know, what, what really is my hope in? And, it, and he, I just need to clarify this before we invite the band back up. Because I know that some of you, when you hear this, put your hope in Jesus, what you're going to hear and what you're going to think you hear is come to church every single week, okay? Read my Bible every single day. Pray every single day. Give all my money away. Or go around and be one of those weird people that knock on doors and be like, would you like to invite Jesus into your heart, right? That's not what I'm saying here. And that's not what Jesus was saying to his first disciples when he said, put your hope in me. What Jesus was saying in this moment is transfer your hope from you. Transfer your trust and your faith from you, from your work, from your finances, from whatever it is that you have your hope in and place it in the hands of a God who gave his life for you and demonstrated his love for you by giving his life away. Because as followers of Jesus, hope is not something we do, it's something we have. We have it in a God who entered history to write his name into your story. And this is the last thing and then I'm done. We know that hope is real and we can experience that hope because Jesus died for you, not because everything always worked out for you. And you know this, right? Because it doesn't matter what your views, it doesn't matter what your belief, if you live life long enough, it will smack you in the face because life is not fair. And if we were to look at the world and the lives that we live and we were kind of uh, measure God's love uh, of us based on how well our life goes, we would have a really difficult time. And the truth is that we know that hope is real and we can experience that love because God entered into history. And in the moment when God was most hopeless, dying on a cross, pinned there by the creation or the humanity that he created, in the moment of God's hopelessness, that was the moment of our greatest hope. And so you can experience that hope 
and I can experience that hope. Not because everything always works out for you, but because Jesus died for you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is often a challenge to, to wrestle with this idea of hope. It's something we, we don't often talk about. So many of us probably think, well, I've really answered that question. Have, have I really answered it? And if we were to look at our lives, maybe the reason we don't want to answer it is because we don't want to find out what our hope is placed in. But Lord, I pray tonight for people in this room that they would leave and then they would begin to discover and they would be begin to unpack where their hope really is. And I pray that they would begin to see the hope that you offer, the hope that you have for them. And that if they've never placed their hope in you before, that tonight they would do that. If maybe they've walked away, maybe if they lost hope in you, Lord, I pray that you would reignite hope and that tonight they would come back. And maybe... Maybe for those of us who have been followers of Jesus for a long time, Lord, maybe it's time for us to continue to hope in you, even in the midst of our circumstances. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.